to Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. I've been preaching through the Gospel of Luke as we have been following along in a series that I've entitled Follow Me because that's the essence of the Christian life. It is following Christ every day, every minute of every day. And, uh, and so we'll be looking at chapter 11. And as, as you are finding your way over there to verse 14, and, and we'll be looking at other passages of Scripture that relate. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I, I have a painful history related to the little insect called a yellow jacket. I don't know if any of you have had a personal up-close uh, encounter with one of the little monsters, but uh, they are a, a different uh, breed of bee, if you'll let me use that expression. Uh, growing up on a farm, I've had encounters with them, uh, with my dad out in the woods. We'd be cutting pulpwood and, and deep in the woods there. And, and one particular day, I stepped in an old stump hole. Before I could pull my leg out of that hole, I looked down and my, my jeans pant leg was covered with yellow jackets. And I mean, it was, my, it was like my leg was yellow. And I was, I knew what they were. And I was the ones, I wasn't so concerned about the 200 on my leg, pant leg on the outside stinging me as I was about the 20 or 25 that flew up inside of my pant leg. And so I'm gonna tell you, it'll cause a man to lose his modesty in a hurry. Uh, you'll start undressing when you're getting rid of those, those monstrous little bees. And, and, and so uh, I remember one time when Tim and I were helping uh, we were cutting the yard of one of the church members. This has been years ago, and uh, that had surgery. And so I was using the, the push mower, and Tim was on the ride, ride mower. And uh, and my my push mower, uh, I came over a hole there in the yard, and all of a sudden I noticed it was just blowing out yellow jackets. You know, it's bad enough to just step on their their hole in the ground, and they they get agitated. But when you suck them out of their nest and you're spewing them all over the place, uh, I can only imagine what I look like running through that yard, pulling the lawnmower behind me with yellow jackets swarming everywhere. I, I just, uh, I tell you, the thing that sets the yellow jacket apart from any of the other bees and hornets in the world is the fact that they, they're not content to do like most bees or hornets do, that just jump on you, sting you, and go away. Oh, no, no. The, that's just the introduction for a yellow jacket. They're just saying, hey, I'm here and, and I'm going to get you. They'll sting you, then they will bite you, and then they'll chase you to Timbuktu. They're the most tormenting bug that there is. And uh, so I, I don't wish that on anybody. I, I, in fact, I'm convinced that yellow jackets are in the scripture. I mean, you know, the, uh, <laughs> over in Revelation chapter 9, when it talks about God sending the angel down with the key that opens up the, the bottomless pit, and the pit opens up and there's this billowing smoke that comes up out of it. And it says, and out of that dark smoke comes locust looking creatures with the face of a human, the body of a locust and the stinger of a scorpion. And they, for five years, just wreak torment and pain upon everybody. So in my translation, that's yellow jackets. Okay. Now, why am I saying that? You know, when I think about a, a, a persistent test, and that that has a tendency to pursue you with great diligence. I think about Jesus's adversaries when he was conducting his earthly ministry here on the earth and Jesus's most persistent and deadly adversaries, human adversaries, I would say, were the scribes and the Pharisees and sometimes the Sadducees, the religious leaders of that day. And, you know, uh, going all the way back to chapter five, we we see that even with Jesus teaching with such great authority and, and power, and as he was displaying such unequaled compassion 
And as she was uh, working unbelievable, just divine miracles of healing and casting out demons, there was, you know, instead of uh, an applause, there was there was jealousy on their part. And so I want you to see this to, to appreciate the text that we're going to look at. I want you to understand the developing relationship over time that was transpiring between Jesus and the religious leaders of that day. First of all, I want you to see their unrelenting hatred of Jesus. You know, they were increasingly jealous of his popularity. And if you were to go back in the scriptures in Luke's gospel, starting and you can just make notes of this. But early in his in his Galilean ministry, as Jesus was becoming popular in, in chapter four, verse 36 and 37. And in verse 42, it talks about the multitudes that were beginning to gather around Christ everywhere he went. In chapter five, in verse one, again, it talks about the multitudes that were gathering and the crowds that were coming around Christ and, 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 you know, out of out of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, they sent delegations of scribes and Pharisees to spy on Jesus to determine what was going on with him. And so in, in Luke's gospel, chapter six, verse 17, for instance, it says, and he came down with them, his disciples, and he stood on a level place with the crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So you see, his, his popularity was reaching throughout not just that one area of Galilee, but proceeded even beyond into the neighboring regions there. And then if you turn over in, in, uh, in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, look at verse 11. I'm just pulling out some examples in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And, and so everywhere we go, all the way through uh, uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 4, uh, verse 19, verse 40. I mean, it, repeatedly, Jesus is draw, drawing crowds. He's drawing multitudes of people. And this is not set in well with his religious counterparts, if you will, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. And, you know, brothers and sisters, as a body of Christ, as the followers of Christ in this world, as Christians, you know, we ought not be surprised that when you and I are faithfully and obediently serving the Lord, following the Lord in this world, and we are sharing the good news of the gospel and we're making disciples of formerly unsaved people, people that were living in sin and out there in the world, and they're now coming to Christ. And as we're engaging in unselfish love and deeds of kindness in the community to show the love of Christ, the love of God to the world around us, then we shouldn't be surprised that our adversary the quote, God of this age, as Satan is known, he will become increasingly jealous of anything and everything that we do to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not out there following Christ, if you're not obe obedient to the word of God, if you're not sharing the gospel, if you're not helping other people come into the kingdom of God, you're not doing good deeds in the name of the Lord in the community. In other words, you're, you're making no kind of a splash on the world around you, then don't expect opposition. That's exactly the kind of Christian, the kind of church that the devil wants you to be. Just lay back, be cool, don't do anything, and just enjoy the ride. But if you're faithful as Jesus was to the Father in his ministry, and it began to draw attention, and people were coming, not only were they becoming increasingly jealous of his popularity, but in the scriptural account, as you go back through the uh, Gospel of Luke, you see that they were becoming 
increasingly antagonistic. Go back to chapter 5 with me there, verse 17, just very quickly. I just want you to see how it just kind of gradually began to build. In chapter 5 of Luke, verse 17, it says, Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal uh, the people that came to him. And so they, they were first just observing, you know, kind of casual, looking in, spying on him, see what this, this radical rabbi was up to from Nazareth. In verse 21 of chapter 5, it goes on to say, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Uh-oh, you can see the tension beginning to grow because Jesus had the audacity to say to a man, the man that was brought, that was lame on the pallet, that your sins are forgiven. And they're saying now, this is, they, their antennas are going up, and they're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, who is this man that can even claim to forgive sin? And then as you look further in that chapter down at verse 30. But the scribes and the Pharisees murmured against his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? That was aimed at Jesus, by the way. So you can see they're jealous of the fact that he is he's he's he's, he's getting outside of the legalistic strict strict guidelines of Judaism. He's, he's functioning in a way that doesn't go along with the status quo, and they're, they're getting increasingly upset with him. In chapter 6 of Luke's gospel, just, just looking here, we're following a pattern in, in verse 2, chapter 6, verse 2, and some of the Pharisees said to them, why are you not, why are you going, uh, why are you doing what is, uh, uh, um, what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And this is when Jesus and his disciples had the audacity to, to, to pluck grain heads and to shuck them and to eat them to nourish them as they were going along. So you see in verse chap, in chapter 6, verse 7, I'm trying to move along, but I want you to see the pattern. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they may find an accusation against him. You can see the tension beginning to build. You can see their antagonism starting to grow. You can see the, the rift that is between Jesus and the establishment of that time in verse 11 of chapter 6. And they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do with this Jesus. And folks, by the time you get to Luke 19, 47, it blatantly says, and they sought how they might destroy him. Jesus's persistent, unrelenting adversaries are like spiritual yellow jackets. <laughs> it wasn't bad enough that they were just focusing on one incident in his life, they're trailing him all the way through his earthly ministry, and they won't be satisfied until they have accomplished their goal of getting rid of him. Listen, the secular world in which we live and practice our faith is becoming increasingly antagonistic towards the things of the Lord, towards the kingdom of God, towards the people of God, towards the word of God. And you know that to be the truth. And, and, and I know it too, as we look at the world around us. In Luke's gospel, chapter 10, Jesus gave these instructions to his disciples. In Luke's gospel, chapter 10, verse 3, Jesus is talking about the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. And, and he says in verse 2, therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. But listen to what Jesus said in the present imperative there in verse 3. He says, go your way. In other words, go on your mission. 
Go and do what I've sent you to do. But he's not, he's not pulling wool over their eyes. He's telling it like it is. He says, I send you out as lambs among wolves. And more and more and more today, as we see the progression of a secular humanistic society that is becoming increasingly antagonistic towards the things of God, you and I will find ourselves not going out into a world with open arms and said, oh, you're a Christian? Good. Sit down next to me. I want to hear more about your faith. Oh, no. You'll find people, the minute you mention God, they will become distant. Not, if you dare to mention the name of Jesus Christ, you can see the hairs bristling up on the back of their necks. But folks, listen, Jesus said, don't marvel that the world hates you. It first hated me. Our mission is not to be popular out there. Our mission is not to accommodate the world or be accommodated by the world. The mission that we have is to preach, to teach, to share the truth of the gospel with every person. We have the opportunity to, to do so. So Jesus is going along doing his kingdom work as he has done all the way up through the gospel of Luke to chapter 11 where we are. And as you look at verse 14 with me, you'll see there they are, the spiritual yellow jackets. They're poised and, and their stingers are ready and their wings are up. Oh, they're ready. In verse 14, a one, in, in chapter 11, verse 14, a wonderful thing happens. As, as, as was the case with Jesus' ministry. All through his earthly ministry, he's, he's sharing good news. He's, he's teaching the kingdom of God. He's giving people who were living in hopelessness hope. For life, he's healing people of leprosy and, and deafness and, 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 and uh, lameness. And, and he's, he's doing wonderful things. He's casting out demons. He's even raising people from the dead. And on this occasion in verse 14, it says, and he was casting out a demon and it was mute. So it was when the, when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. Who would? Here's a man whose life had been crippled and virtually made worthless because he was possessed by a demon that caused him not to be able to speak. And I'm convinced he probably couldn't hear either. And yet I want you to see the response of Jesus's adversaries in verse 15. And this is what we're focusing on this morning. Because Jesus's adversaries in verse 15, it says, but some of them. Some of them, some of the crowd. And, and whereas Matt, Luke says some of them, Matthew's gospel, chapter 12, verse 24, and Mark's gospel, chapter 3, verse 22, names them for who they are. It was the scribes and it was the Pharisees. And listen to their response. They weren't saying, hallelujah, praise God. This man has been delivered finally. Hallelujah. Oh, no. Oh, no. What is their response? They, their response is, they said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. <clears throat> They're overlooking the blessing of the miracle so that they can attack Jesus. They're making a, a horrible accusation against the son of God. They're claiming that Jesus, God's son, the, the promised Messiah, is actually an agent of the devil. It's interesting because they used a name for the 
Philistine God, who is thought to be the Lord of, of, of gods, a prince of all, Baal. The, the Philistines had a name for their God. It was Baal Zebul. But they, the Jews twisted it to be Beelzebul. A very slight alteration in the name, but it was a gigantic alteration in the meaning because Baal Zebul meant prince of Baal, ruler of the demons, whereas Beelzebul, Beelzebul meant lord of the flies. In other words, he is, he's insignificant. He just has control of the flies. I think that was a 1963 science fiction movie, but I won't go there. But he's the Lord of the flies. And so these Pharisees, these scribes, they shout out. Sure, he can cast out demons. He's working for Beelzebub. He's an agent of Beelzebub. He's, he's, they're in cahoots. Their slanderous goal was to attribute the miracles of Christ to his affiliation with the devil, as to suggest that he was on the devil's team. Do you see the sad irony here, though, folks? Here is God's son, God, Emmanuel. Here is a very promised Messiah that, that the Jews have been looking for for generations, for centuries. And he's there in their presence, and he's, he's teaching the kingdom of God. He's working powerful miracles. He's delivering people from diseases and demons. He's feeding the multitudes, raising the dead, and he's preaching with such authority that the people are marveling, and they have the audacity to brand him as if he's an agent of Satan. Later, as we move on through the text, not this morning, but later, we'll see they make a terribly grave mistake. Because in these, in these slanderous accusations, they will find it will cost them. It will cost them an unimaginable penalty. But they're oblivious to that. And then shortly after that, verse 16, others joined in the taunting of the Lord. After, I mean, it wasn't bad enough that he's already been called a son of the devil, if you will. And then in verse 16, the, the others chimed in and said, oh, yeah, they're, they're testing him in verse 16. Uh, and they sought for a, a sign from heaven from him. Oh, yeah, Mr. Devil Man, why don't you do a real miracle? Now, you know, something greater than casting out a demon, something better than making a person deaf be able to hear or a mute person be able to speak again. We want to see a sign from heaven if you really are who you claim to be. In other words, they were saying, do something like, oh, turn the moon to being red. Or rearrange the, the con one of the constellations up in the heavens. Oh, do something big. What a derisive and, and degrading way that they would address the Son of God the savior of the world. But I want you to see in the midst of this antagonistic atmosphere, the wonderful spirit of our Lord. Might you and I take a lesson from the attitude that Christ exhibited, the, the patience with which he dealt with these who were hounding him from early on in his earthly ministry and making such slanderous and egregious uh, accusations against him. As we look there, 
in verse 17. I want you to see how the Lord uh, is, is dealing with them. Before you look at that, let's look at verse 29, because we see an example. It says, and, and while the crowds were thickly forming together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the signs of Jonah the prophet. So Jesus refuses to fall into the trap of, of delivering a sign, but he goes on to clearly and calmly and confidently respond to their accusations. In verse 17, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. So you see where, where Jesus is, is going with this logic. He logically challenges them to consider the fallacy of their accusation. A house divided against itself, if a house is warred against itself, if any entity, social entity out there is caught up in fighting one against the other, and then Jesus is saying, if Satan's house is divided and fighting against itself, then it will just fall into chaos. Will Satan attack his own kingdom? What you're accusing me of doing, he says, is not even logical. Satan wouldn't have someone here throwing his demons out. They're his minions. They work for him. They're on his side. So he attacks the logic of their, their, their charges. And then he goes on to point out in verse 18, their accusations towards Christ would actually incriminate their own exorcist. You see there in verse 18, he says, if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub, verse 19. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, look at the next phrase, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Um, following the logic, gentlemen, if, if, if you think that, that the devil is empowering me to, to cast out demons, then what about your Jewish itinerary exorcist? We saw kind of in a humorous and sad way in the book of Acts where a group of Jewish exorcists, sons of Sceva, a Jewish, Jewish priest, were out there as a team thinking that they could cast out demons. Of course, they ran across a tough one one time, and and, they, and the demon replied and said, look, here. Because they were saying, in the name of Paul, you come out of that man. And, they, and the demon looked back at them and said, wait a minute, boys. I know who Jesus is. I know who Paul is. But who are you? And he jumped on them and whipped them. They stripped them naked and threw them out in the street. Even though Jewish itinerant exorcists existed, I would have to step out on the limb and say they weren't very effective. But Jesus makes a good point there. He says, if, if what you're saying that I'm being used by Satan to cast out demons, then who's empowering your very own exorcists? The ones who are working under the names of Judaism that are out there doing the very same thing or attempting to anyway. So Jesus very calmly, yet very clearly, shows them the fallacy of their logic 
in their accusations against him. But then he goes on, because his authority over demons proved his superiority over Satan. All right, verse 20. It says, but, and you know when Jesus throws a but in there, he's coming back with a fast curveball, so watch out. He says, but, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he's turned the table now, and it's interesting. Jesus uses an expression there that uh, when he talks about sense, I'm casting out demons. He didn't say by the right hand of God. He He didn't even say by the right hand of God. Did you pick up there in that verse where Jesus says that if I'm delivering or casting out demons in verse 20 with the finger of God? You know that in one of the commentaries I was reading, that that expression caught my attention. If you remember back in the book of Exodus, when Moses came before Pharaoh and was telling him that God said, let my people go. And Moses worked in a series of of plagues as, as, as signs to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. When he got to the third plague where Aaron took the rod and hit the dust of Egypt and caused lice, the dust turned into lice and infested men and animals and everything. And when Satan, uh, when Pharaoh's magicians were going to try to imitate this miracle like they had imitated the other miracles, they tried to turn the dust into lice and they failed. They couldn't. And the thing that the magician said to Pharaoh was, This is the finger of God. In other words, we're dealing with deity here who has unimaginable power. If he can do this, he can do a whole lot more. Jesus' implication, barring that expression, was, listen, it's nothing for me to cast out demons. That's, That's just representative of the finger of my father. I can do much, much more. He says, that is just a clear demonstration of the fact that you are in the midst of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, gentlemen, you are standing in the presence of the king. So we look there. Verse 20, but I cast out demons with the finger of God. Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you, which means they're going to be held accountable. They will be held accountable for how they treat the king. He goes on to to demonstrate the illogical reasoning that they had. He says, when a strong man comes, and he's defending his position now, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. In other words, Satan, if he's in full control, then He's got everything under control. All of his, all of his demons, all of his souls of man that he he has uh, captured, his household is intact. When a strong man is in control of his house, everything is secure. But then he says, but then when a stronger than than him comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor. In Satan's household, that would be demons. In other words, in verse 22, he says he's he's casting, Jesus is casting himself as that other stronger man. Yeah, Satan is strong. 
And Satan wields supernatural power. And, and, and as long as he was running the show and in control, there was no one stronger. Everybody was at the mercy of the God of this age. But now let the stronger one come on the scenes, Jesus. And he says, listen, he will, he will overcome him. He'll take away his armor. Listen, Jesus is throwing out demons left and right. And guess what happens simultaneously where the Lord is casting out demons? He's winning souls. He's winning souls. And who is he winning them from, by the way? He goes on in verse 22 to say, he, he, uh, from him, he takes all of his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying not only is the, the Messiah casting out the demons, but he's also taking back souls that once belonged to the devil. Isn't that great? The scriptures tell us, the apostle Paul tells us how we have been redeemed. We have been taken from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. We've been snatched out of the clutches of the devil and placed into the arms of the Lord. We've been taken from being a part of the, the doomed family of the devil. And we've been made to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We're children of God. Yes, Jesus says, I'm taking and I'm dividing his spoils. In verse 23, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And in the midst of making this declaration, Jesus is much as saying, look, I don't work for the devil. You ought to know that. In fact, he says, I come to destroy the kingdom of the devil. And he says, and, and you're standing in the midst of the kingdom of God right now. And then he goes on. And this, this says volumes about the nature of our Savior. Because not only does he make it clear that the kingdom of God is in their midst, but Jesus mercifully challenges his adversaries to reconsider their illogical accusations, but also he's as much as given them an opportunity to leave the side of the darkness and sin and the devil and to come and to be a part of the kingdom of God. Look what he said in verse 23. He who is not with me is against me. They consider themselves to be the most religious people in the land. They, you know, they, they thought they were on God's side. Jesus says, listen, if you're not on my side, then guess what? You're my enemy. And he says, he who is, is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. He gave them an opportunity to reconsider their position and to receive the forgiveness that comes through the confession of sins and to be on the, on the winning side, to be on God's side. Of course, we know how it plays out. For the most part, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the Pharisees continue to be Jesus' adversaries all the way up to the cross of Calvary. You know, I know sometimes people sit in church and they consider themselves to be neutral. They say, well, you know, I, I, I believe in God, and, 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 but I'm just not really ready to take that. You know, I, I'm not a religious fanatic. I, I, don't, I don't need to be following Jesus every day. I don't need to be, you know, pouring over the Bible and searching the scriptures and seeing what God says and then try to practice in my life. I'm a good enough person. I'm moral. 
I believe there's a God and, you know, I don't hurt anybody. I don't harm anybody. I'm just kind of neutral on this thing. You know what I mean? And I'm sure that a good and loving God somehow will work it out so people like me will also get in. That sounds nice. But it's not the truth. It does not fit what the scripture says. There is no neutral ground. You are either with Christ by obediently practicing the principles of his holy word in your life, having repented of your sins and trusted in Christ and chosen to make him the Lord of your life, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And he controls every part of your life. You get up in the morning and you check in with him and say, okay, Lord, you've blessed me with another day. How do you want me to live it for you? It's not for my benefit. It's not for my popularity. It's not to, 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 to uh, bring in all kinds of material blessings. It's all about your glory. And what's so sad is there are many millions of people. And I'm not afraid to use a big figure like that because you just heard Tim say 99. Some percent of people in one country, unless a miracle tra transpires, they'll spend eternity in the fires of hell. But it won't just be the people who are following after Islam and Hinduism and some of the cults. Oh, no. All the neutral people that are just kind of riding along, being moral people, acknowledging that there's a God and they're cruising along. Guess what? Every person one day will stand before the Lord in judgment. And if you're not on Jesus' side, by the way you live your life and the commitments of faith and trusting in him, then you'll hear the same words that the vilest, most violent, evil criminal in history will hear. And it will simply be this from the lips of the Son of God. He'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. On your way to the fires of hell, or on their way to the fires of hell, they may be screaming, but I was good. I never hurt anybody. I gave to charities. I went to church occasionally. I, I was a good person. Depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus says, if you're not with me, then you're against me. You're automatically my enemy. I'll close with these chilling words from Colossians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul says, and you. Just, tell, just reminded the Colossian Christians, and you were once alienated, separated, and enemies of God. But Christ Gave his life to make you blameless in his sight through redemption. Only by the grace of God and by the, the faith that God has given to me and to you as Christians do we have the privilege of having the comfort of knowing that we're on Jesus' side. We're with him, not against him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We know your word is true. 
We know your word is, is, is a message of love, even though it speaks boldly about the devastating consequences of sin. Lord, your word makes it very plain that every person to ever live will stand one day before you in judgment. And so, Lord, knowing that, I pray that you would help us to live our lives as Christians diligently seeking to follow you and to represent you in this world. I pray that, Lord, you would give us a zeal about telling others about the good news of the gospel. Lord, I, I pray that we would be uh, enthusiastically looking to help organizations like Gideon's International get the truth of the word of God into hands of people that have yet to hear, to read, to know. Lord, I pray that as a church, we would have a, a, a deep burden on our hearts for those out in the community who are walking in darkness in shackles to their sin and under the dominion of the devil. Oh, Lord, might we bring light into their lives through the gospel. We thank you, O oh Lord Jesus. We thank you that you are all powerful. You're greater than any principality or power. There's no power, no authority, no organization, nothing above you in this world, not even sin. And we thank you and we praise you. And Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to examine our own lives against the backdrop of your word and ask ourselves, am I with Christ? Am I surely, definitely on his side? And I pray if anyone in this place today has has, does not have that confidence, oh God, I pray you would, you would just move in their hearts and let them sense your love. And Lord, let them come to the awareness of the awful penalty of sin and come to Christ by faith and have the assurance of eternal life and being a part of the family of God forever in that glorious home we'll call heaven one day. And we thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.